Hi, welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo, and I'm the film critic for the Quip film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out my written reviews there at that website, stemming back to 1996, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope that you like the review I'm about to do, enough to click the subscribe button and continue to get all of my future reviews. And I also invite you to check out some of my past reviews from throughout this year in 2015. I have over, almost, I'm fast approaching 100 uh, reviews now, so you can listen to almost every major release over the last several months right there at the Quipster Film Review website. So click the subscribe button and also check out the archives. The movie I'm going to be reviewing today is the adventure fantasy called Pan. It's a PG-rated film for fantasy, action, violence, language, and some thematic material, and it runs one hour and 51 minutes. The star of the film is Levi Miller, who plays Peter, but, you know, he's an unknown, so top billing goes to Hugh Jackman, who plays Blackbeard the Pirate. You have Garrett Hedlund, who's playing uh, James Hook in this film, soon to be Captain Hook. Rooney Mara as Tiger Lily, Adil Akhtar as Smee, Nanso Anozi, Amanda Seyfried, and Kathy Burke also round out some of the supporting players. A very small role goes to basically a cameo appearance by Cara Delevingne, who was in the movie Paper Towns recently, um, but mostly a CGI representation of her. The director is Joe Wright, and some of you may know Joe Wright's name because he was the director of Atonement, very critically acclaimed film, but also followed it up with some very uneven uh films that I liked, but you know, they they, they were a little <laughs> they were a little weird. Uh, specifically Hannah, which also featured for some fairy tale elements within this story. Um and also uh the more modern take on Anna Karenina. Jason Fuchs, who comes from um, the Ice Age series, does the screenplay. So, kind of a weird combo here, but it's a weird movie. That's what I'll say about Pad. Uh, it does feel like the byproduct of a process in which the director, Joe Wright, took J.M. Barry's beloved characters and basically ha- took these characters and made them play in this world of his own choosing where... Uh, all of these things that he probably enjoyed growing up reside. You have uh, elements of Charles Dickens' novels in this film. You have early Terry Gilliam fantasy films, especially if you've seen Time Bandits, if you've seen The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, there's a lot of visual elements in Pan that steal directly from those films, including, notably, Flying Ships, which are featured in, in those films quite prominently, uh, a lot of uh, ad- adventure elements that are taken directly from uh, George Lucas and those Lucasfilm adventures like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and some of his early work. Uh, Avatar gets referenced here. You have a lot of uh, striking visual components taken from steampunk comics. There's music in here that stems from the world of punk rock and grunge. It's like you took all of these elements and you just cram them all the way to the brim into a blender. You puree them down to this nearly unpalatable concoction and then you drink it and vomit it out on the screen. And it just, it's just this magnificent CGI infused $150 million production budget that is just, it's just this mishmash of all of these elements that Joe Wright, he must have had this crazy dream to just put everything that he enjoyed into this film. You know, in this way, you know, in in terms of telling a story based on all of the things that 
that maybe Joe Wright thought were cool when he was a kid. I find that very reminiscent of other directors who have done the same thing, and often not to very good results. For instance, just this year, we had, in February, we had uh, the Wachowski siblings made a film that basically borrowed a lot of elements from a lot of different things called Jupiter Ascending, and this film very much fits in that tradition. I won't say it's as uh, difficult to watch as Jupiter Ascending in terms of its story, but both of them share this passion for homage to all of these other elements, and they steal a lot of visual components from other movies, but um, they still look really, really beautiful, so you, you admire it for its visual beauty, but from a story standpoint, it is almost impossible to really get into, and, and especially in Jupiter Sending's case, it's almost impossible to follow. Um, there was another movie that reminded me of. Zack Snyder, a few years ago, uh, did a film called Sucker Punch. And in that film, um, it, first, it, it has a very similar um, story of these inhabitants in, in Sucker Punch, it was young women. In this one, it's young boys. But, uh, you know, they're, they're members of this oppressive institution. It's a mental institution in, in Sucker Punch. But in Pan, it, of course, it's this orphanage. But they, they go on these crazy adventures that are uh, in, in, infused contemporary pop tunes while they do it. And all of these elements uh, that people thought were cool as kids are definitely shoved in throughout in Sucker Punch, you had your Nazis, you had your zombies, you had, uh, you know, robots and, you know, everything that, that could be put in there, uh, samurais and, and things like that. Uh, this one definitely takes a much different approach and it, 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 it very, very much borrows a lot from fantasy elements. But I think in all of these cases, if, the, if there's one thing that should have been proved to everyone, including Joe Wright, is that just putting everything that's cool that you can think of uh, from what you remembered as being cool as a kid doesn't really translate into a movie that is a cool movie. It's a beautiful disaster of a story. It's very visually striking, but spiritually, it's also very vacant. Now, as far as the storyline goes, we start out in London. Around 1930, um, we find this very young, anguished mother portrayed by Amanda Seyfried, um, she is carrying her newborn baby. She ends up uh, uh, leaving it in a basket on the doorstep of this uh, all-boy orphanage. Um, we flash forward to 12 years later, and we are in war-torn London of World War II. You know, bombs are ravaging the area, and this baby that we saw at the beginning of the film is now a 12-year-old boy named Peter, and Peter has made friends, as he probably, you would probably imagine he would do with 12 years at the orphanage with the fellow boys in this, in this establishment. But he's also made some enemies with the badgering and, and very, uh, ogreish nuns that run the facility. Now things get really complicated when Peter learns that boys have gone mysteriously missing during the night and he wants to find out why that is. And he, he wants to get to the bottom of things before he ends up being uh, also <laughs> uh, abducted, I guess. And he soon f uh, learns firsthand what's going on because pirates start descending from the sky through the top of the building and stealing not only Peter, but also the other uh, members of the orphanage, the other boys in the orphanage, away to their flying pirate ship 
and it is that the pirates are actually led by this very ruthless ringleader known as Blackbeard, who uses these young boys in order to get cheap labor for uh, this mining operation that he has r- going on, in which he is uh, mining for fairy dust in this land that he has dubbed Neverland. However, when a cruel punishment at the hands of Blackbeard reveals Peter's ability to fly, something that Peter didn't even know he had in him, Blackbeard is immediately uh, uh, reminded of this uh, this prophecy that he had once heard that the, that there would be one, at some point he there will be a chosen one who will be a boy born from the union of a fairy prince father and a human mother who would lead this rebellion against him. And that makes, obviously and understandably, Blackbeard very wary of Peter. So he puts Peter into this pirate jail, and during his his stint in jail, he quickly befriends this American adventurer named James Hook, who's played by Garrett Hedlund, and they, a hook springs them out of this jail, and their adventurers eventually lead them after stealing a ship, uh, takes them to the land of fairies who were transplanted when the pirates took over their Neverland, and uh, there they find uh, a, a young woman named Tiger Lily, is this very scrappy mystic and uh, princess. And Peter thinks that, uh, eventually soon learns that Neverland may have the key to him being reunited with his mother again. And together with these newfound rebels, uh, these uh, fairies, uh, the prophecy that Blackbeard feared of a rebellion against him begins to take root. Now, Pan is a very strange movie all around, and um, not really in its favor for the most part, and yet it was, it's, it's, interesting to watch from a visual component in a way that I I won't say it's the worst film of the year, but certainly uh, I can't imagine most people thinking that it's not a misfire of some sort. Um, Now, one of the weird elements in this film, and it's actually one of the the ones that stick out the most, is there's this attempt in the film to work in some contemporary songs. For instance, um, there's a scene in which the pirates and Blackbeard and even some of the uh, the slave laborers begin to sing sing the lyrics and cadence and and, and ditty uh, of Nirvana's "Smells Like Teen Spirit" uh, in is in a scene very reminiscent of uh, a similar scene from Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, which this seems to crib directly from. That also was featured in that film, although it was more of a mashup there. Uh, the Ramones' Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg Bop also features uh, as a pirate song later in the film. I think the use of these songs, I, I'm not averse to these uh, anachronistic uses, but I think that what really is confusing about the way that they're used here by Joe Wright is that the movie is already wildly inconsistent in tone. And so, especially when you consider that this is a story that is set at a time a good deal prior to these songs' very existence, it doesn't really work for the movie to introduce them well into the movie. You know, Moulin Rouge did virtually the same thing, of course, but Baz Luhrmann established early on what kind... Not not, not only that this was a musical, but he also established that Moulin Rouge was going to be using songs that people know about today. 
And he did that early enough in the films that we could take all of the songs that we hear throughout the movie at face value of sorts. But Joe Wright waits well into the film to introduce these songs. And prior to that, Pan wasn't a musical at all, so it feels very incongruous with the rest of the movie. And it really takes you out of this moment. And I, you know, most people in the theater, in the, uh, screening that I saw it with just kind of looked around to the their friend or family or significant other, you know, with this kind of look in his face is like, I, am I hearing this? You know, are they really singing Smells Like Teen Spirit? So it takes you out of the story um, in order to admire it from a musical but also visual component. Now, uh, the performances here are problematic too. Now, the performances themselves really aren't the issue. I think if there's a problem here with the uh, performances, it's really more to do with the casting. I no, I will give kudos to Levi Miller, who uh, is an Australian actor. He's he's a, he's a newcomer, definitely. He's not been in a major production before. He has really good screen presence in, in kind of that kid actor way, um, and he plays Peter with with exactly the right tone, I believe. But uh, Hugh Jackman, who's the uh, the the top build. Uh, actor in the film. He hams it up, but I think that he does it in a very appealing, energetic way as Blackbeard. He doesn't look like a pirate. He looks like some some character from some uh, <laughs> 18th century uh, renaissance or something like that. But, it, it, you know, all of the characters here uh, feel like they're compiled from different movies from different eras. So it's it's this weird mix that doesn't always work in its favor. Like for one, the, I think the one that stands out most here is Garrett Hedlund who plays James Hook because he's really uh he has a lot of camp in his delivery. He's uh this swashbuckling uh character. He's very much like Indiana Jones, kind of Han Solo in a way. Uh and the, the voice that he uses seems to be channeling Christian Slater. If Christian Slater were also channeling the voice of John Huston while doing it, it just sounds like, listen, I'm going to do this. And I'm, you know, it just doesn't really, it just, it's just a weird choice. Rooney Mara, uh, you know, certainly she's an appealing actress. She has nice eyes that make her very alluring, but regardless of what, you know, those eyes never blink. And there's this really, you know, she's known as being kind... She can play very cold and aloof in films, but here, as this feisty princess who kicks butt in close combat, she has a very downplayed character. She doesn't have a lot of screen charisma. It can often make you overlook her when she's surrounded by everyone else who's kind of cranked their uh, their performance level to the maximum in terms of being uh, emotive and campy. So she kind of gets lost in the shuffle, even though she has a major character here. Um, the character she's playing feels to me a lot like the role that Natalie Portman played, you know, Amidala from the Star Wars prequels, um, because she also was this princess who could fight quite well in close quarters. And um, the one thing that I will briefly mention is that there was some controversy prior to the release of this film because people were upset that the character of that she's playing, Tiger Lily, the racial component of her is uh, traditionally a Native American, but here she's played by a Caucasian. And, uh, you know, I, I personally think they should just change her to Tiger Lily White uh, to, to, to make it that more, that much more obvious, I guess. But, uh, 
to the defense of the movie, um, the la- the Neverland characters, these kind of fairy-like, these kind of magical characters that inhabit the film are like pan-cultural. Uh, so you have a lot of elements from Asia and Australia and Africa, and all of these are kind of crammed into one big um, uh, conglomeration of people from all over the world. So they are trying to, they're, they're not whitewashing the film per se, although they give the one major character, uh, you know, she is played by Caucasian. But again, in Joe Wright's defense, uh, they were looking to ca- cast Lupita Nyongo and, and other, uh, different, uh, actresses of different, uh, races for the, I, I'm not sure exactly why they ended up on Rooney Mara, but, you know, there was an attempt here to not whitewash the film. Now, there are some story elements, themes, and side characters that uh, are put into the movie, and you wonder why. For instance, Tinkerbell, you know, a lot of people associate Tinkerbell as part of the Peter Pan story. She's completely a cameo here. She's here for a few seconds. She gets her name, but she doesn't do anything. And in fact, she's one of a million, you know, different fairies that you see in the film. So there's really no significance to her. Um, perhaps she's going to appear in a, uh, uh, or the, the thought was that she would appear in a, a future adventure. There's a CGI version of, uh, of Cara Delevingne. She's playing several identical looking mermaids. They're tossed into the mix of the plot at hand. There's really little that are done with these characters. And I think that this setup for future sequels is really evident because I feel like these characters played by these, uh, by actresses that are known are done here intentionally in order to give us uh, uh, something to anticipate for when we get up to speed with Peter Pan because this is kind of a prequel to the Peter Pan story so um, given that this film has been critically lambasted and also the audiences that have seen it have been largely indifferent to this and see it as a very bloated misfire in, at least in this initial theatrical run, maybe eventually it'll build its uh, its cult following. I, but I don't. Th- I think it's going to miss the mark for a lot of people here. I think that the the frustration is, uh, and this has been a pet peeve of mine for a long time, is that you don't build for future sequels that may never happen. Because what we end up with is a lot of story elements that make no sense within the context of this story, and so therefore. Uh, taken as a one-shot movie is kind of a failure in terms of its storytelling elements. Now, one big uh, inconsistency, I guess, for the story is uh, there's this friendship that forms between Peter, and uh, obviously if you know the Peter Pan story, you know that Peter and Captain Hook are adversaries. You know, Peter is the good guy or the protagonist, and Captain Hook is generally the antagonist, here we have Captain Hook, and he's not even hook-handed yet, so you feel like there's more to the story. At the end of the film, he still has both his hands, so you feel like they're playing for a sequel, obviously. And uh, given that they're traditionally enemies, we know that they don't have a falling out yet in this film. So um, we are tipped off to this element at the beginning of the film, because this is this opening voiceover by Seyfried in which it's mentioned that sometimes friends start as enemies and enemies as friends, and so that kind of tells you, you know, that that the traditional roles are going to be shifted, in, in ter- at least in terms of this movie. So given that they're still friends at the end, the filmmakers are obviously eyeing a continuation in future films, but we're left with loose ends to this story that we're probably not going to be able to finish. And I think that most people 
are going to be okay with that. They probably won't care to see any more of it, at least most audiences. I think that some people will take to this movie, but I think that, by and large, uh, it's going to really struggle to find that audience. Now, while the visual elements of Pan, I will admit, they are very stunning. Um, not always in the most appealing way. There's some of it that's kind of ugly, but uh, still strikingly uh, visual. It really feels like a very sumptuous visual experience. I think what the movie really needed was the ability to ground the story into some sort of semblance of reality before we get to the land, or, to, or to, before we get to Neverland, because I feel like it, it, it's necessary to make Neverland a land that is truly magical and special, and it, dis, it doesn't really do it here. Now, if you take a look at, say, the way the Wizard of Oz did it, you know, there was this great contrast between the farm life of Kansas shot in black and white, uh, very dreary and desolate, and then we get to this this magical world shot in technicolor of, of the land of Oz, and it's beautiful and magical and color, and, and everything gets very ornate, and that really gave you the sense that, that Oz was this great, wonderful, mystical, magical world, and I think that that's what's missing here, because the, the, whereas The Wizard of Oz... Um, which I think Pan actually gives a nod to because it, it itself starts off in black and white, uh, at least for a moment. Um, the scenes of the orphanage, first we start off in black and white in which uh, the mother of P- Peter is doing all kinds of crazy uh, jumps and things like that, so it, it doesn't feel grounded in reality. And so e- even leaving this basket on the doorstep feels like this mystical thing. And then uh, what the boys do in the orphanage feels very movie-ish. So by the time we get the boys whisked away on board a flying ship inhabited by pirates who look like they're seemingly being taken out of Cirque du Soleil with their bungee jumping and rappelling around, uh, that by the time we get to that moment where it should have been, wow, all of a sudden we're in a different movie, it feels actually like all part of the same movie. So when we get to this fantasy world, it's supposed to wow you, and I feel like Joe Wright was trying to do that, but we are already invested in the story as a work of fantasy. We're not investing it as reality, and then it goes into fantasy. So we should be marveling at this strange new world that Peter and his fellow orphanage mates are in, and instead we're just wondering what the point of all of it is. So... Our mouths are agape not because of how stunning it is. Our mouths are agape because we're wondering what in the world is going on. Pan, I would say, as a movie, it has a lot of interesting and sumptuous visuals going for it. But I think there's there's a little bit of an irony here in knowing that all of these visual elements seem to have been mined and pirated like so much of the fairy dust that pervades the plot of this story. And like that fairy dust, which is a drug, it's actually not just fairy dust, uh, they call it a drug uh, called Pixum, and the smoking of this drug results in the rejuvenation of the appearance of those who actually uh, ingest it. So, while the look of those who ingest it may be beautiful and shiny and new, like the film, underneath, it's still old and saggy and decrepit at its core. The film's title of Pan alone is really inviting critics to 
do the same after seeing it. So I'm not going to pan pan as much as other critics because I feel that there are a lot of interesting elements in here, but they don't really come together. And on my scale, that is a two and a half star movie, which is all of the elements were here to make a good movie, but woefully misguided choices along the way prevent it from ever coalescing into something worthwhile. So two and a half stars on my scale means a mediocre film and one in which uh, uh, there's a lot to admire, but so frustrating, hair-pullingly frustrating in terms of what they do with all of this, all of these interesting toys that they have to work with. So two and a half stars for Pan. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoy the review. Don't forget, click the subscribe button if you haven't done so already. And I also uh, invite you to check out my webpage, quipster.net, where you can also find links to my Twitter and Facebook uh, feeds, as well as to uh, get the email address that you can write to me directly. And if you haven't done so already, I would also appreciate it if you happen to be on iTunes to leave me a review if you like the show. It definitely helps me a lot if you tell others what you think. So until next time, thank you for everyone for listening and enjoy your time at the movies.